0: Dear church family, one 20th century minister once made this remark, that the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. And we know this must be the case, because our Lord himself teaches us in the book of James that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And yet, and perhaps I speak only for myself, but our prayer times, whether our personal prayer times, or our family prayer times, or our church prayer times have a great tendency to lose focus, to lose energy, to lose warmth, to lose urgency, to lose purpose. In fact, at times, prayer in our lives can be something of an appendix to our lives. Corey ten Boom, when thinking about this subject, asked a very important question in a very good way. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? In other words, is prayer an integral mechanism to the way you steer your life? Or is it something you only pull out when trials force you To pull it out. We have to confess, I think, that prayer, at least deep, heartfelt prayer to God, is often something we only come to when forced to come to it. And so this afternoon, as we spend our time around the Word of God, I want to take this time to meditate upon the prayers of a man who was clearly controlled by prayer. Prayer was not an appendix in his life. That's the prayer we have before us in Daniel chapter 9. Now there's a number of ways we could look at this lengthy prayer, this lengthy chapter. What I want to do this evening is draw out 14 principles or 14 lessons for scriptural prayer that I hope are going to spur us on to fervent prayer before the Lord and also teach us how we ought to form those fervent prayers before our great God in heaven so 14 principles or 14 lessons um, of scriptural prayer which I hope will spur us on in prayer in the weeks to come the first principle is this And please do follow along as I go through these verses. The first principle is this. Prayer ought to arise from faith in the word of God. Prayer ought to arise from faith in the word of God. We see that in verse 2. Read along with me. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books, note that, by books, the number of, of the years, whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, to give us some background on this comment, because we're jumping into this chapter with really little context in the book of Daniel. But the time of this prayer that Daniel gives in chapter nine comes in the time when a second major kingdom had begun to rule over Judah, who was living in exile. First it was the Babylonians. And now it's the Persian kingdom who is ruling over Judah. But we see in this chapter that as the years dragged on for Daniel, as the Babylonian captivity turned into the Persian captivity, Daniel did not give up hope. Rather, he set himself to study the word of God. That's what we see in this verse. He was, he was reading through the books of the Bible. And that's how he came to read about the prophecy of Jeremiah. In fact, we see this prophecy that he references in verse 2 in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. There we read this. After 70 years be accomplished at Babylon... I will visit you, speaking of, or God speaking, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So Daniel is working through the word of God. And as he reads page after page of these, what we call now Old Testament prophecies, he comes across this clear declaration of what God will do. God will bring the people back from exile at a certain time. And Daniel clearly laid a hold of this promise and believed it. And we see that, don't we? Because it moved him to earnest prayer. It moved him to earnest prayer. Verse 3, "...and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes." And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. So Daniel didn't just open the Bible, read his passage for the day, and then close it and think no more about it. He read it, wrestled with it, and then he believed it. And that led him to fervent prayer towards God. One man Put it this way, one pastor. He said, faith starts prayer to work. It clears the way to the mercy seat. Or Robert Murray McShane said something similar when he said, urgency in prayer does not so much consist in vehement pleading as in vehement believing. He that believes most the love and power of Jesus will obtain most in prayer. And so if we would pray well here this afternoon, we must begin by searching and understanding and then believing the Word of God. We might say that this is the foundation of prayer. If we don't have the Word of God as the foundation in our prayer, Not only will we not pray for what is right, but we will not pray in a way that is persuasive towards God, if I can put it this way. God loves to have his words prayed back to him. He values his thoughts more than he values our thoughts. And so prayer at its foundation must begin with faith in the word of God. That's the first thing. And then secondly, prayer ought to be intentional. Prayer ought to be intentional. Notice how Daniel uh, describes his preparation for prayer in verse 3. Children, perhaps you can read those few words as I read them. He says, I set my face unto the Lord God. Interesting expression. I set my face. What does that mean? Well, the word for set there is the word for, for to give something or to put something into place. So Daniel is, is literally putting into place a posture of direction towards God. There's an intentionality, a, a purposefulness about how he began this prayer. This wasn't just a haphazard prayer that Daniel just jumped quickly into and then jumped quickly out of. Daniel is purposeful in his prayer. And this doesn't mean, of course, that those little prayers that we shoot up to God throughout the day are wrong. Those are very good. We ought to do that. But we ought to also have times of intentional prayer. Times where we are purposefully setting our face towards the Lord. Such that the Lord looks upon us and says, This child of God, this individual, longs to speak with me. Longs to have answers from me. This, this, this individual is diligent in seeking my face. You could think about it in terms of a marriage. It's good, isn't it, to have times where with your spouse where you compliment each other in little compliments or you make small requests, little times of fellowship together. But it's good also to have times set aside of fellowship where you can really have good, deep conversations together. It's the same way with prayer. We need to have set times of intentionality in our prayer towards God. And then thirdly, prayer ought to be done with great humility. Prayer ought to be done with great humility. We see this in verse 3, where we read this, that Daniel set his face to God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth. And ashes. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of what was going on here, but clearly, Daniel was deeply humbled. He was deeply humbled by the state of his nation. He was deeply humbled as he read his Bible. He didn't come to God with pride and say, Lord, why have you not yet brought your people back to the promised land? Lord, why have you not done this? Don't we deserve to be brought back? It's been a long time. He doesn't say that. He humbles himself with fasting, with sackcloth, with ashes. He doesn't debate God. He doesn't debate God's choices. But his heart was broken by the sins of his people. Broken, as we see later on, by the sins also of his own heart. Daniel really had the heart of prayer that David had in Psalm 123. David says there these words, As the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy Upon us. So prayer ought to be done with great humility. And then fourthly, prayer ought to be done with sincere and warm hearts before God. Prayer ought to be done with sincere and warm hearts before God. Verse 3 that we just read part of makes this clear, doesn't it? Daniel's heart was so moved that he de- deprived himself of food. He de- deprived himself of comfortable clothing. He afflicted himself to prove to God in one sense that he was sincere. He was genuine in his desires towards God. Daniel didn't pray because he felt coerced to pray. He didn't pray out of guilt. He didn't pray to set an example for others. He didn't pray just because it was the right thing to do. He prayed because he genuinely wanted to plead with God in a sincere way, in a warm-hearted way. And this is hard, isn't it? It's hard in my life, perhaps it's hard in your life, to pray with sincere, warm hearts to God for the things that we desire. But perhaps we can be encouraged by several Quotes from one man, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. He said this first. He said, Cold prayers, cold prayers are as arrows without heads, as swords without edges, as birds without wings. They pierce not, they cut not, they fly not up to heaven. Cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Or he said also this prayer is only lovely and weighty as the heart is in it and not otherwise it is not the lifting up of the voice nor the ringing of the hands nor the beating of the breasts nor an affected tone nor studied motions nor seraphical expressions but the stirrings of the heart that god looks at in prayer god hears no more than the heart speaks if the heart be dumb god will certainly be deaf no prayer takes with God, but that which is the travail of the heart. Or to put it all a little bit more concisely, Jim Elliot, who I'm sure many of us know of, put it this way. He said, cold prayers, like cold suitors, are seldom effective in their aims. And Maybe we ask the question, well then, well then, How do I make my prayers warm before God? How do I bring sincerity into my heart as I pray to God? Let me give you two things from Daniel's situation. First, think about the life circumstances that Daniel found himself in. A time of exile. A time of trouble. A time of, of great desire towards God. A time of of calling upon God to remove this foreign nation from the rule that they had over God's people. A time of affliction. But Daniel didn't let that drive him to despair, to silent despair, to mute despair. He let it drive him to prayer. To urgent prayer. And so it ought to be in our lives. Think about all those times in your life when you go through what we call times of stress. Times of difficulty. Do we let those things drive us to urgent prayer, to warm prayer to God? Or do we fret about them and complain about them? Or do we avoid them? Or just try to bear up with them? No. Let our circumstances that God places us in. Let the stresses of life drive us to sincere prayer before God. That's one way we can come in sincerity to God. The second is what we just considered concerning the Word of God. How else better to warm our hearts to pray sincerely before God than to be in the Word of God? I'm sure you've found it. If you've If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's when you are in the word of God, when you begin to wrestle with his promises and lay a hold of his promises, that your prayers begin to warm up. That your heart begins to ascend towards God in prayer. In real prayer. Prayer that doesn't just hit the ceiling and bounce back down. So be in the word of God. I might put it this way to you. Be busy. Be busy warming your hearts in the furnace of God's word that your prayers might then wing their way towards heaven. And then fifthly, prayer ought to be made with an attitude of reverence. Prayer ought to be made with an attitude of reverence. Look at how Daniel addresses God in verse four, the middle of verse four. O Lord, the great And dreadful God. Oh Lord, the great and dreadful God. That word dreadful there is a word that comes from the word to fear. To fear. So Daniel entered the presence of God. Not casually. But with reverence. He recognized that he was not just entering the presence of another man. He was entering into the presence of God himself. But this fear we need to take note is not an unbelieving fear. That is, if I can put it this way, scared in an ungodly way of God. It's not the fear of Judas that drove him to destroy himself. This is the fear of Isaiah when he came into the presence of God in Isaiah 6. And he falls before God. Not because he doesn't trust God, but because he sees God for who he is. And he sees himself for who he is. And there is no other reaction that we can have then in the presence of God than to fall in reverent fear before God. This is also the fear that Job had at the end of Job when Job has been debating with God. How is God just in bringing these things on me? But then God reveals himself. And Job said, I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. And I repent myself in dust and ashes. You see, this is true reverence, true godly fear. And this kind of fear is a fear that has, if I can put it this way, at its heartbeat, at its very core, a recognition of two fundamental truths from Scripture. One, that God is a just and a holy God who hates sin, but also a God who is merciful and loving and willing to receive sinners whenever they come to Him in faith. And this kind of fear, this kind of reverence and prayer is the kind of fear that purifies our prayers. It removes from them vanity and brings the heavy but beautiful fear of God into them. And then sixthly, sixthly, prayer ought to speak to God according to God's revelation of himself, not our own imagination. Prayer ought to speak to God according to God's revelation of himself. Not our own imagination. Look at verse 4 again with me. Look at look at these words. O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, children, do you remember where those words were first sat? Maybe some of you have memorized those verses. Do you remember, where in the Bible can we find those words? Keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. They were given, weren't they, by God himself to Moses. It was one of those great self-revelations of God to man. And Daniel comes to God and instead of making up his own approach to God, he comes to what God has said about himself and he brings it back to God. This is who you are, Lord, as you have said in your word. O oh, Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. And so prayer ought to speak to God as God reveals himself. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we need to always use the precise words of Scripture. But it means that the concepts that we use, the truths about God, ought to be rooted in the Word of God. And it means that the balance with which we approach God, whether we speak about His mercy or we speak about His holiness, finds itself from the Word of God, is drawn from the Word of God, not from Our own minds. Prayer ought to speak to God according to God's revelation of himself. And then seventhly, prayer ought to confess sin sincerely. Prayer ought to confess sin sincerely. Now I realize that I say this to a church and we know this. It's almost hard to say anything more basic than this to Christians that prayer ought to confess sin sincerely. And yet, if we're honest, often we don't confess sin sincerely. We, we confess it out of habit. We do it because we know we ought to. We don't confess it from the heart. But Daniel's confession here is clearly from the heart. And we see that, don't we, by the immense amount of detail that he gives to his description of his sin. It's clearly on his mind. It's on his heart. Look at verse 5. He says, we have sinned, we've missed the mark, we've committed iniquity, our actions are twisted, we've done wickedly, our actions have brought us guilt, we've rebelled, or we've revolted from under God's commands. That's just one verse. Verse 6, we've not listened to God's prophets, God's messengers. Verse 7, we've trespassed God's boundaries. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed to walk in his laws. Verse 11, we've transgressed thy law by departing from thy voice. Also, we've sinned against him. Verse 13, he mentions his iniquities. Verse 15, we've sinned, we've done wickedly. Verse 16, he speaks of our sins and of the iniquities of our fathers. Daniel is, if we will, droning on, except it's not droning. It's coming from his heart. He's speaking of it much because it lies much on his heart. His heart is full and so his words are many. So we shouldn't be afraid in our prayers to speak about the details of sin that we have committed. Not in a morose way, not in a depressing way, but in a way that acknowledges the the terribleness of sin. All of the, the, the details of our sin. And brings it all before God, that God might wash it all away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So prayer ought to be confessed specifically and sincerely. And then eighthly, prayer ought to be done not just personally, but also with a corporate mindset. Not just personally, but also with a corporate mindset. Look at verse 5 again. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, I have sinned and committed iniquity. Nor does he say, they have sinned and committed iniquity. What does he say? Children, what's the word there? What's the pronoun? We have sinned. We have sinned. You see, although Daniel himself, by and large, had been faithful before his God, he had been a wonderful example To the people of God. Still Daniel sees himself as tied to the people of God by bonds of covenant love. So he doesn't draw a distinction. He doesn't point the finger. He says we have sinned. That the people's sin became his sin. Their troubles became his troubles. The judgment that had fallen upon them became his punishment. Really Daniel stands here as a type of Christ. In his, in his mediating work, his intercessory work for his people. And so we have to ask ourselves, don't we, do we pray in this way in our churches, in our families, our friend groups, our Bible studies? Do we pray in such a way that we don't reject these other people who we see as worse than us And pray for them as if we're entirely separate from their struggles and their sins? Or do we pray like Daniel? We have sinned. To put it another way. Do we act like that man in the New Testament that Christ spoke of that said, God, I thank thee that I'm not as as that other man. Or do we say with the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And also to us. Lord be merciful to us sinners. So prayer needs to be done not just personally. But also corporately. And then ninthly. Prayer ought to be done remembering the covenant bonds that tie us to God. Prayer ought to be done remembering the covenant bonds that tie us to God. If you read Maybe you can do this afterwards, but if you read through verses seven through verse fourteen, you'll notice that Daniel's prayer, the way in which Daniel pours out his heart to God, is formed in the light of the covenant. It's it's formed in, in the light of the covenant law that God had given, the covenant requirements but also in light of the covenant love that God had promised. Daniel's prayer is fully informed by the covenant. And to get a little bit into the details, you notice here that as he makes his conclusion on the state of Israel, he doesn't conclude that God has been too harsh on them. He says, no, it's according to what we had agreed. It's according to the covenant God was just in bringing this punishment on Israel. Verse 7. To us belongs confusion of face. To God belongs righteousness. God is just in what he is doing. So he informs his prayer with the covenant in terms of the covenant requirements. But then also look at verses 7 through 9. Particularly verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses though we have rebelled against him so he brings in the law the covenant law but also O lord to you belong mercies he admits his guilt because of the covenant but he lays hold on the covenant mercies of god this is the way to pray to a covenant keeping god And then tenthly, prayer ought to be done with sincere concern for the Lord's reputation. Prayer ought to be done with sincere concern for the Lord's reputation. Notice that in in verses 15 through 19. We might describe those verses as the heart of Daniel's request to the Lord. And his concern here is very much for Judah's well-being. He cares deeply about them. But he presents his request to God in the proper order. He begins with God's name. With God's reputation. With God's kingdom as the main thing. You look at verse 15. He makes mention of God's fame in his first deliverance of Israel. Verse 17 and verse 19. He he makes his, his appeals on behalf of the Lord's person for his sake. Verse 18 and 19, he asks on behalf of the Lord's name. All the way through verse 15 through verse 19, he refers to Judah as thy people, thy city. He's, he's, as it were, presenting Israel in the light of who God is and God's reputation. Daniel recognizes that in God's mind, even though the salvation of his people is paramount, still the glory of God rises still higher. And so Daniel presents his prayers in the light of God's name and God's reputation. And Daniel does this also because he knows, this, he knows the way in which God thinks. Maybe that sounds funny to us. But we ought to speak to God according to how God thinks, how God acts. We see this all through Scripture that those who truly knew God prayed in relation to God dominantly to the glory of god or at least finally to the glory of god if you look back to god's deliverance of israel from egypt why does god say that he delivered egypt yes he did it because he loved his people but what's the constant refrain through those passages in relation to pharaoh it was that pharaoh would know that he was god and there was none else or you look through the, the, the chapters and books after Exodus. Why did God drive out the nations? Yes, it was for his beloved people. But even above that was that his glory might fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so what could be better for us? What could be better for us than to pray in light of the fact that That God's name ought to be glorified above all. And to, to plead with God, even upon the basis of his name being glorified. Lord, help me in this area that thy name might be glorified. You see, this is a persuasive argument with God. Because he loves to see his glory filling the earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, we pray, on earth As it is in heaven. And then, eleventh. Prayer ought to be made also with sincere concern for the people of God. Prayer ought to be made also with sincere concern for the people of God. And so Daniel's paramount love was for God and for God's glory. But at the same time, he loved. He loved this people of Judah. He loved God's people. We might say Daniel's heart was wrapped up in them. There was no disconnect between Daniel and the people of Judah. And this is again a beautiful picture of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. Not separate from his people but he prays for them as those who are his. Those he dearly loves. And what an encouragement also for us as we look around us in our pews at the people I trust we love to bring also them before God. Not out of duty primarily, but because you love them. This is how Daniel prayed. This is also how we ought to pray. And then twelfth, prayer ought to be made with an awareness that we are immediately heard. Prayer ought to be made with an awareness that we are immediately heard. Look at verse 23 if you have your Bible still open. There the angel says, at the beginning of thy supplications, at the beginning of of thy supplications the commandment came forth and i am come to show thee for thou art greatly beloved we might say that daniel's prayer immediately pierced into the throne room of god it was at the very beginning of daniel's supplication that he was heard it was at the very beginning that he was sent the angel was sent for And we read of this as being part of the character of who God is. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So prayer ought to be made with an awareness that we are immediately heard. And then 13. Prayer ought to be made with a willingness to wait. A willingness to wait for God's full answer. It ought to be made with an awareness that we're immediately heard, but also with a willingness to wait for God's full answer. So we notice that, don't we? The angels sent immediately to answer Daniel's prayer, but then when God gives his answer, he doesn't give Daniel exactly what he wants right away. What's his response? Daniel asks for salvation, That God would relent, but what's God's response? Verse 24, 70 weeks, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish transgression. In other words, there was going to be a time of waiting for Daniel. Daniel, yes, your prayer has been heard, but I will have you wait until my perfect timing is accomplished. We need to be aware of this, don't we, as the people of God, that God does not work on our timetables. Just because we feel something is ultimately urgent does not mean God sees it as ultimately urgent. Thomas Brooks, who I quoted earlier, says this about God's answers to prayer. He says, You must distinguish between delays and denials. God may delay us when he does not deny us. He may defer the giving of a mercy, and yet at last give the very mercy begged. So prayer ought to be made with a willingness to wait for God's full answer. And then 14, and lastly, prayer ought to be made looking, looking for a gospel-informed response. Prayer ought to be made looking for a gospel-informed response. Now, I think it's fair to say that whenever we pray for something, whenever we make requests to God for something, we are asking God for lowercase s salvation from something or from someone. When we pray for healing, we are looking for salvation, lowercase s from our state of sickness. Or children, if there's a situation at school, maybe someone is giving you a hard time there, and you ask God to help you, you are really praying for salvation, lowercase s. And so our prayers are filled, aren't they, with these requests for lowercase s salvations from God. And Daniel also, Daniel also, had made this request for a lowercase s salvation from God. He was looking for the physical restoration of Judah to the country from which they came. A good request. And yet, a lowercase s salvation request. But look at how God answers him. Look at how God answers him. And also how God answers us, ultimately. The angel, the messenger of God, points daniel to jesus christ he points daniel to jesus christ what else could he be speaking of in verse 24 then jesus christ he speaks of an end of sin jesus christ reconciliation for iniquity jesus christ and everlasting righteousness jesus christ And the anointing of the most holy jesus christ And so we actually see a principle here that runs throughout Scripture that although it's wonderful, it is good, it is necessary, we must do it to pray for lowercase s salvations in all the circumstances of our lives. We we must remember, we must remember that God's ultimate answer, God's ultimate answer to our request does not come in the physical healing. Or, or in the financial help, or in the relational help. These things are good, and, and sometimes God does provide these things as pictures of His mercy. But the ultimate answer that we must all look forward, for, forward to is the salvation, the, the salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, if we focus our prayers only on the lowercase s, salvation, then we will be disappointed We will start to argue with God. God, why aren't you giving me what I need? And God's reply to you is A, I have my own timing. And B, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we might receive healing here on this earth if we're struggling with sickness, and yet death will still come. We might have a relational situation solved. But sin causes relational stress our whole life. And so on and so forth. But if we have our framework of prayer properly oriented to look to the capital S salvation in Jesus Christ, then we can wait with patience upon the Lord. Then we can pray with expectancy, but also dependency upon God to provide exactly what we need in exactly the right time. And so to bring this all to a conclusion, we can put it this way. Our many long prayer lists that we rightly bring to the Lord in prayer find their ultimate solution in Jesus Christ, in his sin-atoning work, in his reconciling work, and in his work of ultimately bringing us home to be with him in glory. All the lowercase as salvations, will not ultimately satisfy, but Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, one day in heaven will be our ultimate satisfaction. And so can I encourage us as we offer up many prayers, I'm sure tonight, tomorrow, through the week, to look, yes, for answers in all of our needs. God is a prayer answer in God. Also for our lowercase as salvations, but let us look to Jesus Christ. He is the final answer. And if we're here this evening and you have no idea what I'm talking about, you don't know Jesus Christ, make that your first priority. Pray about other things, but pray above all that you might know Jesus Christ, that you might know his righteousness, that you might know his atonement for sin, that is what will bring you peace. And that is what will bring one day bring you to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. That will be the final and the full salvation. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Great Lord and God and Father,